Welcome to the 458th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Ed Amar, author of the novel They're Gone, which is published under the pen name E.A. Bars. Stay tuned for the interview with Ed Amar. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Ed Amar. Ed is the author of the new novel, They're Gone, which is published under the name E.A. Bars. Ed, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. For- if someone listening hasn't heard about your novel, They're Gone, yet, how would you describe the novel? So it's a thriller. It takes place in the D.C., Maryland, throughout the D.C., Maryland, Virginia region, and it's about Two women whose husbands are murdered the same night in the same way. They are the two women are from completely different backgrounds. One's a forty-something Northern Virginia housewife. The other is a twenty-something Baltimore bartender. And their search for what happened to their husbands brings them together, and hilarity ensues. And do you re- <laughs> do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write They're Gone? Yeah, that's a funny story. I was at a book festival in Chicago, I don't know, maybe three years, two or three years ago, and I guess three, and I was talking with a writer who writes historical fiction named Susanna Calkins, and she was telling me about research she had done. She was writing a series that was set in Al Capone-era Chicago, and the newspapers at that time had referred to, after I think the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, I I think that's what it was, had referred to the uh, widows of all the men who had been gunned down as the bullet widows. And I thought that was such a great phrase. And I told Susanna, I'm totally going to take this and run with it. And she said, okay, that's fine. And really the whole (laughs) impetus of the novel came from that, except for the name, which the publisher changed, which is fine. They're gone. It's probably more marketable. So I'm okay with that. But I really loved the bullet widows. That was the original title? It was, yes. Yep. So what was your writing journey before getting your first novel published? It was, I got an agent one day, a publisher the next. No, it took... (laughs) (laughs) So I started writing seriously, and by that I mean on a daily basis, and taking my writing seriously in 97. That's when I graduated college. And 1997, not 1897. I'm not that old. But I I started writing on a daily basis, and I didn't... I had my first book ready for submission to agents probably in 2003 or something, and it didn't get picked up. In fact, I never got – I didn't get published until 2011, I think. It was a long process. And in that time, there were you know some false starts, some hopes here and there, a couple of, of – I had a different agent. I had some publishers who were interested in other stuff I'd written, but the my I didn't really have I didn't have a novel published until 2011. So that was 14 years, if I'm not mistaken, doing my math. Can you tell us a little bit about that kind of period in terms of your writing? Were you focusing on crime novels? Were you bouncing around to figure out what genre you preferred? What was that like for you? Yeah, you know, I, I didn't really think about 
genre as much when I started. I, I had an idea for a book, and it would have been probably somewhere close to general fiction and literary fiction between that category. And the so that's what I wanted to write. And I, I didn't really pay any attention, much to my detriment. I didn't pay any attention to publishing or anything like that. All I did was read and write, and it was wonderful. That's I think for a lot of writers, that's a really important time in your writing life where you don't really know the you're learning the rules, but you don't know yet any kind of limitations and it's wonderful you're learning as you go and there's it feels like there's no bad books to read and there's and there's no bad sentences to write and and there's a lot of fun to be had in that but then once you start once you start focusing on publishing on making this a profession it really that dramatically changes your that first book for most writers, doesn't get published and probably shouldn't. But you're learning so much about writing and about the kind of writer you're going to be that it's really a, a, a kind of a wonderful thing to experience. Once you start looking into publishing and once you learn into what getting an agent entails and what they want and what publishers want, and, and really, most importantly, what readers want, everything dramatically changes and a lot of the, what you learn stays, right? Those are the lessons that, that really fundamentally in, inform how you're going to go about your business. But so much of it at that kind of infant stage is really lovely. And so were there writers or novels that inspired you during that stage? Yeah, I had a very canon approach to literature when I was in college. I I studied the traditional what David Foster Wallace once called like the great white male writer of 20th century American literature. I, it was Hemingway and Faulkner and Fitzgerald, and then it went to Updike and Philip Roth and writers like that. And once I, you know, once I, I got out of that and I started looking into publishing and realizing where my interests were, I realized crime fiction was what I wanted to write. And the crime fiction writers that I I started reading, Laura Lippman and Megan Abbott and Sujata Massey, were fantastic. And they were easily as good as the capital L literary writers that I was also reading at the time. And the stuff in my book, in my books, the, that, that really struck at, stuck out to readers were the criminal elements which were always elements in my work. And I felt there was a moment where I was like, you know what? I want to gravitate towards that. Then I never looked back. I know that you organized an event in the DC area, Noir at the Bar. What were those events like pre-pandemic? They were great. The Noir at the Bar series was something started in the late 2000s by a book blogger named Pete Rosotsky out of Philadelphia. And he had the idea to get a bunch of writers in a bar and just do your readings there. And we, it became really successful. It was something that all that started cropping up in other cities. And I started doing it for DC. And we, most readings are very staid, sort of conservative affairs. There's polite applause, what have you. A noir at the bar is completely different. The stories are, they're, they're, they may not be strictly noir, but they're informed by it. So you tend to have a little bit of profanity, a few moments where you're, did that writer really just say that? And it's, it's eight to 10 minutes, not usually not more than that. And honestly, the alcohol helps too. 
(laughs) But we would have for DC, when we were doing it pre-pandemic, we would do it in the upstairs area at this wonderful bar, the Wonderland Ballroom. And they, it was the upstairs area was something they could use for dances and things. We had standing room only. It was great. There's 50 to 100 people easily per event. And for readings, that's just unheard of, but it's a really great concept. And so did you ever get interest from people who were non-riders who were just in the bar and and tried to check it out or were interested in checking it out? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that happened. With our space, we were upstairs and away from the bar, so we were a little separated from the the regular crowd. But absolutely, at other places that I've done it at, people will – if somebody's telling a really – good story and yeah actually the the, really one of the best readers at these events is somebody who was on your show recently eric pruitt and when eric reads he i the bartenders are listening everything stops he's such a gifted (laughs) storyteller and some of it comes from his an acting background but he's so good and his writing is so great that people are hanging on every word. When you get writers like that reading, then yeah, the entire room's captive. That's great. How have you adapted that event during the pandemic? We, a writer out in New York, Alex Segura, he hosts the New York North Bar series or one of those series in New York because I think they have a couple. And he was the first person to, to make it virtual. I think he did it around... April of last year. And at that point, the pandemic was very uncertain and very fresh. And we were all, there's this really wonderful moment. And I, nothing is wonderful about the pandemic, but there is this moment where in the beginning, where I felt like there was a sense of unity that came from fear and from confusion and from everybody being in the same situation. We're all like, oh, we're all at home. We're all teaching our kids at home. We're, we're all stuck together. We're all in the same position. It was very much to me, it reminded me of 9-12, the other day after 9-11, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. when there was that sense of necessary comfort. And so Alex did you know, his virtual event pretty, it was maybe late March. It was very close to when we were when the severity of what was happening was real beginning to be realized, at least in America. And there were maybe three to 400 people on that, that uh, first event. And there was a writer reading, but there were also comments and the comments were people like so warmly saying hi to each other and how much they missed each other and how excited they were to see other people's faces. We, We didn't have zoom fatigue at that time. So this was all so necessary. Uh, and I asked Alex, I said, can I do this for DC? Would you care? And he's like, no, I don't care. Go ahead. So I started doing them. And we have in DC, we're very lucky because we have the DC area. We, because I'm out in Virginia, but we, we have so many independent bookstores here. And what I did was for every event, I partnered with an independent bookstore. And I said, you can if you like the writers here, you can buy their books through one more page bookstore in Arlington, Virginia. And here's their page with, uh, here's a page they set up with all of these writers' books. And I, I did, I guess, 10 to 14 events in 2020, all virtually. And it was, it was terrific. It gave us a chance to, at first I did them in a rush. I did them weekly. And that was a lot to take on, but it became... I don't know. It just got, we never had less than a hundred people and the supporters of the events became constants and regulars at each one. 
And and that was so great. It was so I, I met a lot of people through that, and we were, and and it was nice to be able to to provide this. And I'm saying that it, it sounds very altruistic. I also liked the attention. Sick of being upsold at gyms. My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. <laughs> I don't want to lose. Like a, that sounds like a great event. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and we're. I'm going to do it for 2021. We. One of the things I did to adapt because I, like I mentioned with readings, how they can be, they can be hit or miss. Yeah. I, a good friend of mine is a jazz singer, a Sarah Jones, and out of this area, and I, she sings a couple of noir themed uh, songs for each event, which is just a great, and she ends up stealing the show. And I have another friend, Chantal Sang, who's a local mixologist, and every event she makes a drink based off one of the books and then does a cocktail demonstration. So it sounds great. great. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. And and they take some of the pressure off me too, which is nice. Yeah. So are you working on another novel now? I am. Yeah, yeah. I have another book that I'm writing and I think it should be it takes me about a year and a half to write a book and get it to the point where it's to my agent and polished and done. And so hopefully by this summer it'll be ready uh, ready to go to uh somebody else but me. <laughs> That's great. What was your writing process while you were working on They're Gone? Do you, do you outline extensively or do you um, follow the story more organically as you're writing? I'm, I have to outline. I'm very set in my ways and I very much need routine. I'm sorry if you hear my dog barking. I don't know. Oh, that's okay. (laughs) I I very much need routine. If I don't have a structure, then I just get really antsy. I I outline extensively and if they're gone, one of the things I do is I write, I I tend to write a mix of short chapters. Part of that is because I, I like the pace it keeps for the book. And the other part is I like a sense of accomplishment. So I feel like I go, hey, I finished a chapter, and <laughs> yeah, it's three paragraphs, but still. <laughs> <laughs> so, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels, and might be in that period that you were in for, I think, fourteen years? <laughs> I would say <laughs> most of the advice that you're that, that people give is fairly not, I don't want to say obvious. It's obvious afterwards, but stuff like find a writing community and learn about the industry and learn about the genre and what you want to write and, and where your place will be. And all of that is true and important, but I would go to something a little more about writing itself, which is always make sure that you, your writing is engaged with a location. I teach writing occasionally and I, and I judge contests occasionally. And one of the things you, a lot of that is is based in short stories. And a lot of times writers leave out location because they think it's taking away from the focus on character. But location informs character. If you're writing crime fiction, an investigation that, that occurs in New York is going to be markedly different than one that occurs in, say, Athens, Georgia, or Honolulu, Hawaii, or Seattle, Washington. 
and you need to to make sure that you're including that you that that, that, that you have a, that your story has a relationship with the setting. It doesn't have to be. You don't have to have a, a, a Woody Allen rosy view of Manhattan or something. You don't have to like the location where the story is set, and it's probably best that you have mixed feelings about it. But you really need to make sure that it's there and it's present and it's strong. That's good advice. And I would think that people who uh, want to see that done well would, I'm a big fan of James Lee Burke, who mm-hmm. we yeah. setting in really well. So what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Oh, man, there's a lot. I read last, I recently read Hannah Mary McKinnon's, a book that's coming out this year. She had a, her last book, Sister Dear, came out in 20. 20- and that was great. And in 2021, she has a book, You Will Remember Me. And I, I got to read an advanced copy of that. And it's terrific. A, a writer whose book came out, her debut novel came out early last year, maybe late 2019, but I think it was early 2020. Her book, All That's Bright and Gone, was just every sentence was just heartbreaking. I, I really enjoyed that. And then I think there's I can't remember the title right now, but Rachel Housel Hall, she's a mystery writer out of LA. And I think her, her book, I cannot remember the title is, oh, and now she's gone. That's what it is. I knew it had gone in the title because we're gone siblings in our titles, but yeah. And now she's gone. I started reading that and I'm mesmerized by it. So those are three books lately that I've read recently that I'd recommend. That's great. Where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novels? Easiest way is eamar.com. That's my website. And I have a monthly newsletter uh, called Crime Fiction Works that has recommendations for books that I like. And then I put some insight in there about my own writing and, and what's going on in the crime fiction world. My website's where you can find everything about me, my newsletter, and all of my social media handles and stuff. Great. Again, we've been speaking with Ed Amar, author of the new novel, They're Gone, which is published under the name E.A. Bars. The book is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Ed, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you so much, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Now, stay tuned as Ed Amar reads a brief excerpt from his novel, They're Gone. Hi, my name is Ed Amar, and I'm reading from the first two chapters of my upcoming thriller, They're Gone, published November 10th from Crooked Lane Books. Chapter 1, Winter 2019. Deb Lynn Thomas didn't understand how she'd slept through the night. Something should have woken her. The sounds of gunfire, no matter how distant, her husband's soul ripped away, the abrupt, violent, permanent change to everything she knew. But Deb had slept peacefully and only woke when she drowsily heard the sirens outside her home. Instinctively, her first thought had been about her daughter, Kim, at Washington College. In a panic, she turned toward Grant's side of the bed. And that's when she realized he was gone. Minutes later, Deb stood barefoot in her kitchen, wearing a robe hastily thrown over the thin t-shirt and shorts she'd worn to bed, numbly listening to two cops tell her that her husband had been killed in a robbery. This wasn't something she could have imagined or accept. Now in her early 40s, Deb was of an age when tragedy was striking her friends, rapidly moving cancer, the slow death of parents, but not violence. It felt like the worst kind of horror, one that Deb thought she'd been spared. And not Grant, 
He wasn't a small man or a passive one. He'd boxed in and after college, and although he didn't have a temper, people knew better than to test him. For the most part, despite a rueful middle-aged softening, he stayed in shape. He was popular, respected by colleagues and neighbors, always in control, physically, emotionally, professionally. When change happened, it was because of a decision Grant made. But now that notion seemed hopelessly ignorant and terrifying. Grant had been murdered, and he'd been powerless to stop it. Men who kill, Deb realized, make their own rules of law, even nature. And now the laws of her reality were unwritten. Friends and family soon filled her suburban Northern Virginia home, but Deb was very much alone. She had to be reminded to eat. Her eyes were raw from constant crying. Her ribs ached from ragged breaths. Her voice, hoarse and grief-stricken, sounded distant to her ears, as if coming from somewhere buried underground. Her 19-year-old daughter, Kim, returned from college to stay with her. Deb knew she needed to be there for Kim, but for those first few days, the most they could do was cry in the same room and hold each other, as if desperately trying to stop themselves from dissolving. Deb had known Grant was going to die someday, the same way she understood she would also die, but it was impossible to accept. There, but for the grace of God, went others. Not him. Chapter 2 Two young cops pushed through the doors of Baltimore's Fells Gate Tavern, eyed by everyone in the dark, dingy bar, then ignored. Most uniformed cops took control of a room when they entered it, but the moment these two walked in, the room had them. They stayed in the doorway. One cleared his throat and asked, Is Kessie Castillo here? No one in the sparsely crowded bar replied. The bar wasn't large, nothing more than a handful of tables, and only about half were occupied. It was too dark to see everyone clearly. The cops approached the bartender, a short 20-something woman wearing a tank top with tattoos running down her right arm. Do you know where we can find Kessie Castillo? The bartender drank from a shot she'd poured herself. The glass knocked loudly on the wood when she set it down. Her voice was guarded when she spoke. You know what she looks like? The other cop shook his head. Her neighbor just told us that he'd, she'd be here. Why'd you go to her apartment? It's about her husband, Hector Ramirez. The first cop, cop glared at the second. But we really can't discuss that with anyone but her. The bartender's eyes widened. Hector? Hell, I'm Kessie. What did he do? You're Kessie Castillo? The bruises Hector had left on Kessie's back and stomach earlier that evening ache. She wondered if a neighbor had heard Hector, called the police. What did he do? She asked again. He died, ma'am. The second cop blurted out. The first cop, slightly older than his partner, but only in his serious face, the premature stress lines around his hooded eyes, nudged the second. I'm sorry, my partner's new. Hector's dead? For a moment, the pain from her bruises was forgotten. Everything was forgotten. Kessie felt the room darken, her mouth dry. First grief, then relief. The two emotions wrestled inside her like darting flames, each trying to devour the other. I'm sorry, someone asked, one of the cops. Kessie was gripping the edge of the bar. She relaxed her hands, shakily poured herself another shot, drank it. If you can, the older cop asked, we'd, we'd like you to come with us. We have some questions about your husband. Yeah, like what? Her mind raced to figure out what had happened. Natural causes wouldn't have brought the cops. An accident would have to be suspicious. A killing. We'd prefer not to discuss the incident here, the older cop told her. 
Kessie had suspected there was something shady in Hector's life, the way he took phone calls in another room, the late nights when he woke to discover he'd returned to the apartment and was in the shower. But she'd suspected he was having an affair. Had some estranged husband murdered him? Or had it been something else? Okay, Kessie said. She slammed the shot glass down on the bar, called to the back office. Well, I'm out. Hector's dead. See you tomorrow. The younger cop said nervously, uh, you probably don't want to broadcast. Relief was winning out, the first giddy realization of freedom. Let's go, amigos, she said. What are we doing? You need me to identify the body in the morgue? We don't do that. Just show you a photograph. Well, damn. Kessie grabbed her purse, the quick move igniting the pain in her back, the pain that would never be there again. How am I supposed to dance on a photograph? For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.